And I know it may have taken your ears a couple of minutes to catch up to uh, Suresh's speed there with his uh, Indian accent, but God is doing a remarkable, remarkable work through Suresh and through uh, Harvest India in uh, India right now. And part of what we're giving to through the special offering that continues to run through the end of this month um, goes to support Harvest India, a ministry that I hope to see us engaging with more and more um, in the future. I hope to see us connecting um, with in terms of actually being able to, to be support and be on the ground there once or twice a year beginning next year. So uh, pray for them. If you haven't given to the Greater Impact Special Offering, you need to give to it. Let me just say that frankly. This is part of why we stretch once a year to give sacrificially. Uh, this is not about meeting our goal. I'll tell you a little secret. We've already met and exceeded our goal. But there's a, yeah, you can clap for that. But there's a second goal anytime we give a special offering, and it is to get as many people involved in the act of sacrificial giving as we can. There's not many of us in here that fail to buy Christmas presents, right? So I would just encourage you, go to the website, click on the Give Now link, designate to the Greater Impact Special Offering and give. It goes to support Lottie Moon, goes to support Harvest India. Next week we'll see a video from Graffiti Church and Outreach Ministries, Community Ministries in New York City. So it's just amazing what God's doing around the world. Um, Tori and John shared a little of their heart about chaos they're experiencing while they're moving with little kiddos. It's a, it's a tough time right now. Last night was a tough and a bizarre night in our house. Uh, one of our uh, young toddlers, Zeke, decided to uh, to get up and play at one or so, and Sharon got up with him, and I heard, heard them out in the living room going at it for a while. Any moms remember it those days? Some of you may be living those days right now. Like, we thought we'd been set free of that, and now it's returned. And I was kind of listening to the show out in the living room thinking um, how crazy it is for us to try to argue with two-year-olds. An attorney can't win with a two-year-old. They can out-argue anyone on earth um, and I may or may not have dreamed last night that I was parachuting in to a combat zone and my chute didn't open and Stuart Van Hooser caught me when I landed so I don't know what's going on um, I got up this morning took stock of what I'd eaten right before bed last night I don't know what's happening I do know this though that you and I are, are living through cultural turmoil in our nation that is constantly inviting us to live out of fear, not faith. Every minute of every day, from individual voices to organizations and philosophies and groups to computer algorithms that make sure what you see on your mobile device or on your screen is always going to agree with you or at least lead you into greater fear to push you in one direction or another. And I'm not saying politics and voting are bad. Man, those are good things. They matter. They matter. I, I know uh, we moved from Texas, and uh, our home state has just experienced tremendous sustained growth the last decade. And I know one of the interesting things we noted is that people were moving um, in droves, almost a mass migration to Texas from the East Coast and the West Coast, and then they're moving in and continuing to vote for the same types of individuals that instituted and believe in 
the very policies that created the high taxation, high regulatory systems from the states they were fleeing in. Is that not bizarre? That's bizarre. Um, Georgia's experiencing the same thing. Part of what we saw in this last election, whether you liked it, didn't like it, is that Georgia's a state on the move. It's a state that's getting younger and more diverse year by year as people, particularly from the East Coast, move down and go, you know what, Atlanta area, not too bad. Savannah, not too bad. And there's this invitation to, to live consistently in fear, to take sides, to categorize people that don't think like we do, think like I do, or think like you do, and then to just simply name call like we're all still in middle school. But I'm telling you, that is not how the people of God behave. That's not what it means to be salt and light together in a broken world. We're going to look at some invitations God gives us in John chapter 1 in just a minute. But I wonder if you have ever passed on an invitation that you wish you hadn't passed on later. All right, maybe, maybe it was something as simple as friends going out to uh, hang out one evening and you're invited and you say, no, I don't, I don't really want to go. And then later you see the social media pictures and it looks so fun. And you pass on it. What, I, I love movies. I love movies and TV. Not just watching them, but the industry and the history of the industry uh, is really interesting to me. And one of the things I like um, looking at every once in a while are actors who passed on, on roles uh, that became great roles, became blockbuster or classic movies. I want to give you a list of a few this morning. Anybody remember a 1990 movie named Pretty Woman? Called Pretty Woman? Yeah. Yeah, well, Julia Roberts played the pretty woman in that movie. It launched her career and forever changed her life. That character was supposed to be played by Molly Ringwald, or was at least offered to Molly Ringwald. Some of you will know her, some of you won't. She was one of the, one of the little darlings of the Brat Pack movies like Breakfast Club, which I've seen, 16 Candles, which I've not seen, Pretty in Pink, which I will not see, um, but Ringwald passed on that part. She since moved to France and, and somewhat moved into um, sort of a, an unknown kind of life, what the rest of us would call private life, uh, which I like. Anybody see Tom Hanks star in Forrest Gump when it first came out in 1994? Any, how many of you saw that movie in the theater, Forrest Gump? Yeah. Did anyone in here see that in the theater more than once? Yes, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Right. I saw that movie in the theater probably three or four times. It was fascinating to me. It combined my love of history with my love of cinema. And it was the first time that, that film was spliced together like it was, where it looks like uh, Forrest Gump is talking with JFK and Nixon and, and other people. It was really a fascinating, fascinating film. Launched the uh, Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. Ever, anyone ever eaten at one of those? Um, I've eaten at them, yeah, at cities around uh, the country. It launched an entire line of Bubba Gump Shrimp Company apparel and merchandise. That role was originally offered to John Travolta. Like, I, I like, yeah, oh, I feel the same way. Like, I, I, I like Travolta, but nobody, I don't think, could have become Forrest Gump like, Gump like Tom Hanks did in that movie. Uh, Travolta said later that it was the biggest mistake he's made in his professional career was passing on that role of Forrest Gump. Uh, any fans of Gladiator out there, Russell Crowe? 
Yes. Let me tell you something. If Gladiator is not a surf stopper for you, you need counseling. Like if, if it's not a place where you set your remote down when you're going through television channels and you see gladiators on, whatever else is available, you should stop there and watch it. We can recommend counselors to you if you need one. Just email staff and let us know. That part was, was originally offered to Mel Gibson. And Mel passed on it, and he said this, which I find offensive. He said he was too old in his early 40s for all the physicality of that movie and the sword wielding. That's ageist, right? And you can't be ageist in our country anymore. He passed on that. Russell Crowe took that part. Let me give you just a few more. Maybe we'll reach back just a a little bit. Uh, Anybody remember the days of Greece? John Travolta did take that part. Danny Zuko. Well, that part was originally offered to Henry Winkler. Henry Winkler. We're starting to separate the generations now. Some of you are like, that's right, the font. Some of you are Googling Henry Winkler. Um, Winkler passed on that because he didn't want to be typecast as the Fonz, which he said later didn't matter. He's been the Fonz all his life. He could not get away from it. Really uh, built John Travolta's career. A couple more real quick. Um, Al Pacino, the Godfather plays Michael Corleone. I appreciate the respect and awe that I heard among some of the men. I'll tell you too, if you're a man in here and you can roll past the Godfather on TV and not stop, you're in deep, deep trouble. You've got emotional problems. Right? Al Pacino, that part of Michael Corleone and the Godfather was originally offered to Jack Nicholson, who probably would have been great. But Nicholson said at that time in his life, and this is so like Nicholson, he said, I thought Indians should play Indians, Italians should play Italians, Jews should play Jews, and so on and so forth. And he wasn't Italian, so he passed on it. One last roll. Harrison Ford as Han Solo in Star Wars. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I don't know when he died off there. Um, You know, the first three are the best to me, right? Uh, That part originally was offered, funny enough, to Al Pacino. And Pacino said he didn't want it because that's too, too far out there. He said, that's bizarre. That, that movie will never go anywhere. So we had Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, so on and so forth. They may still be making them. I don't know. Pacino, when asking in an interview, said, yeah, I definitely got that one wrong. I got that one wrong. Well, there are invitations that you and I pass on, most of which are not a big deal. They're not a big deal. But there are invitations that God holds out to us that it is to our detriment when we pass. And usually we pass not consciously but subconsciously and out of fear because of the things that fear whispers to us. But I will tell you this, that voice of fear, not the healthy one that keeps you from running into traffic, or jumping in a rapid river if you know you can't swim good. Not that kind of fear, but this spirit of fear that whispers, you can't do it, you can't do it, you're not enough, that's not for you. Don't buy in. That fear is a liar. That fear is a liar. Let's look at just a few verses uh, in John chapter 1 and look at a few invitations that God gives us that he's holding out to us this morning. As individuals and as a church, that we're going to miss if we spend our days listening to the voice of fear instead of the whisper of faith that God 
makes available to us. Let's look at a passage that we uh, took a run at some months ago, but I want to come at it from a different angle this morning. John the Baptist has been on the scene. He's been declaring the coming of the Messiah. And all of a sudden, in God's wisdom and historical sovereign will, Jesus Christ has come. He's there. John the Baptist recognizes that this is the Messiah. This is the one to whom the entire Old Testament has been pointing. This is the one the people of God have been waiting on. And he declares him to be so. Let's pick it up in verse 40. Verse 40. I'll read 40 through 49. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Let me just throw out for you a few invitations that we see in this passage. And then we're going to look at each one and how the, the voice of fear can keep us from saying yes. There's an invitation to follow. There's an invitation to make a difference. And there's an invitation to overcome that God is giving us through Jesus Christ and through what we see taking place in this passage. Let's look at verses 40 and 43 again. Simon, or Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, hears the testimony of John the Baptist. And through the power of God's Spirit, he believes. He believes that Jesus is the one John says he is. And there's another one present with him. He believes as well. And they did this in verse 40. They followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. Now look at verse 43. Jesus goes on the next day, he leaves for Galilee. He finds Philip. And what's the invitation that Jesus gives Philip? Follow me. He doesn't say, put my bumper sticker on your car. He doesn't say, here's a WWJD wristband. He doesn't say, vote this way. He says, follow me. The great deception of our day is that if we say no to this, if we stand outside of being true disciples of Jesus Christ, that means we're self-made men or women. Right? 
we're, we're, we're following our own thoughts and our own minds and our own hearts and blazing our own ways. And can I just say, church, that's not true at all. You and I are always, to one degree or another, following different voices, philosophies, and systems of thought. I read an article about a year ago about what, what it looks like to, to be a disciple of someone. Not necessarily, it wasn't written in a Christian context, um, but it was written looking at the life, among others, of Chris Farley, a comedic actor that I absolutely appreciate, though my wife does not. Movies like Tommy Boy and Black Sheep, I love. Sharon doesn't, she's not into it. I tried to get her into it, but there are some places, even in a marriage, where you just can't follow one another, right? Chris Farley talked about how one of his idols, one of the guys that he idolized and he, he sought to, to emulate and to be like was John Belushi. John Belushi. And he did. Both of them started out uh, their careers at Saturday Night Live, on Saturday Night Live. Both of them went on to media careers. And both of them died, interestingly enough, at age 33 from the consistent abuse of drugs Alcohol and food. It was a toxic trinity in each one of their lives. Chris Farley chose to emulate and follow the wrong person to his own detriment. Jesus is giving us an invitation to follow him. Now, some of you are sitting out there and thinking, I said yes to Jesus years ago and was baptized. Here's my observation about that. There has grown a great chasm in the life of the evangelical church in the United States, and especially so in the Bible Belt, between those who consider themselves Christians or saved and those who are actually followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus Christ, following their rabbi so closely that his dust gets all over them. And they begin to look and sound and smell like Jesus. This invitation to follow is an invitation ultimately to be redeemed. To be saved. Can I just say uh, with straight candor, Jesus is not Savior where he is not Lord. There's no such thing as getting Jesus for insurance after death and not having Jesus for master and leader and guide now. He is not Savior where he is not Lord. But so often that is what we want. We want Savior without Lordship in our lives. But the question goes even further. What is it that we're being saved from? If you ask most long-time Christians, they'll say, hell, we're being saved from hell. But I want to let the Apostle Paul answer this from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. The Apostle Paul says this, after his own radical encounter with Jesus Christ that changed his life forever. He says in verse 18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul says what we're being saved from, 
when we hear the invitation to follow Jesus, say yes, and are redeemed by God, regeneration takes place in our lives. The Spirit comes to dwell in us, and we're given new hearts. We're made alive spiritually. What we're being saved from is the wrath of God that's being stored up for those who reject Him. We don't talk a lot about the wrath of God in church anymore. And I will say, I will say, when you put the wrath of God against the love and mercy and grace of God, love, mercy, and grace wins out throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture. But we need to hear that what that mercy, grace, and love is doing is redeeming us from the coming wrath of God and making us, by God's good grace, agents of restoration. Remember, it doesn't end with redemption, but restoration. The kinds of things we saw in the Harvest India video. It's not just that you get someone to say yes to God and say, man, that's awesome. Let's get you baptized and we'll see you at your funeral. It's that God is about justice. He's about restoring the brokenness that sin has caused in the world. Romans 1, 18-20 is also why I don't buy into atheism. I never take seriously anyone who tells me they're an atheist. Not even the, the popular, dynamic, influential atheists that we've seen and popular atheism that we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years. It doesn't mean I don't respect them. It doesn't mean I don't listen to them and think about what they're saying and ask their story and seek to love them. It's just that I trust God's Word over them. They absolutely know there's a God. You don't spend so much time writing books and giving lectures about something you believe doesn't exist if you really don't believe it exists. Anybody find tons of books and lectures out there about why fairies aren't real? Anybody find anybody fired up with a website devoted to the fact that unicorns aren't real? No, because we know they're not real. But Romans 1 says that God has made his eternal glory, his power, his qualities known to his creation in sufficient manner that we stand guilty before him if we continue to say no to the gracious invitations he gives. Now, the judgment, uh, the, the wrath that Paul is talking about here is both active and passive. Right? It's both active and passive. The passive judgment of God is just God saying, fine, fine, have your life on your own terms. Parents, think about this with your children. Like how many times have they just worn you down and you're like, fine, have fun with that. Right? You know what's going to happen? They just need to experience it for themselves. So there's a, there's a passive element to God's wrath. There's a sense in which C.S. Lewis said that the, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Because no one who enters that eternal judgment wants to be anywhere else. They don't like God any more on the other side of this life than they did on this side of life. But there's also an active nature to God's wrath that I don't want us to miss or shy away from or misunderstand. It's the aspect of God's wrath that is absolutely punitive. It's punishment. And we have an idea in our day, it's very popular in our day to say punishment should be restorative. And I'm a fan of restorative justice to the degree that it can take place. But punishment also must not just be restorative, but retributive. If it's not retributive, then it makes light of the crime that was committed. Right? Punishment that is active 
mediated out in a retributive manner has a whole lot to say about the value of the one the crime was committed against and about the heinousness of the crime. And Scripture speaks to this. That's why sin is so powerful. Sin is so powerful because when I sin, it's not ultimately against you. I may sin against you, but my sin is ultimately sin because it is against God. It is against God. And for there to be no coming judgment of that, both passive and active, no coming wrath as punishment for that is to make light of who God is and to make light of the destruction of his creation that my life brings on while being unchecked in my own sin. There's an invitation to follow. Some of you in this room, you've never said yes to Jesus. You've scoped him out, you've thought about it, you've been around church, but there's never been that moment where in your own life you laid down your arms toward God and you said, yes, Lord, I am who you say I am, and I believe that Jesus is who you say he is. And you allow God to come in and to change you but here's, here's what fear says to you with regard to this invitation to follow. Fear says you can't trust him. You can't trust him. And this whisper of fear comes over and over and over and over again. Anybody remember that God's word teaches us that Satan is the father of lies? He's a deceiver. He's behind the whisper of fear that says you can't trust him. Don't give yourself fully to Jesus. Don't do it. If you do it, he's going to wrong you. If you do it, he's going to keep you from the good life. But can I tell you that what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, is that you and I ultimately trust that Jesus is right about everything. Not just eternal things, not just heaven and hell. He's right about relationships. He's right about money. He's right about forgiveness. He's right about being peacemakers. He's right about sex. He's right about marriage. We could go on and on and on and on. That's what it means to say yes to Jesus' invitation to follow. He is Lord if he is Savior. But there's a second invitation. It's to make a difference. It's to make a difference. Not just like the self-help aisle of Barnes & Noble. Not your best life now. But to make an eternal difference in the way that only God can do through you as the Holy Spirit is using you, as you're willing to be used by Him to employ the unique gifts that God has given you. There's an invitation to make a difference. Let's look back at verses uh, 41 and 42, and then I'll skip down to 45 and 46. Verses 41 and 42. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. This, this initial impulse in John chapter 1, after Andrew comes to believe in Jesus Christ, is then to begin to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior with his words and his life. He begins seeking out people close to him and bringing them to Jesus. There's this invitation not to just come and sit, there's so much damage and so much restlessness in our churches today by people who were taught that what salvation is is saying yes to Jesus so you can go to heaven instead of hell and then we just sort of carry you around in the bucket of the church until we dump you out at your funeral. 
That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture says that to be swept into the redeeming love of God in Jesus Christ is to be swept into the movement of God that's taking place on earth. The redemptive movement through Jesus Christ. Look at verses 45 and 46. Philip, after Jesus says, hey, follow me, and Philip begins to follow, finds Nathanael. And he tells him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The son of Joseph. Nathanael, like he's flabbergasted. He's like, Nazareth, Nazareth, have you seen that dump? Have you been there? Like there's not even a theater there. There's nothing there. How can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip simply says, come and see. Come and see. Can I tell you, so much of evangelism is come and see because God has called us collectively to be his witness. Primarily. You individually, secondarily. But when you look at the y'alls instead of the you's in the New Testament, they're so disproportionate, it's crazy. We are called to be salt and light together. We are called to be witnesses for Christ together. Because the, the, the manifestation that what we say we believe is real comes to people when they look at how we relate to one another. Without that, there's no proof at all to what we say we believe. But when they come in, and this goes back centuries, and they go, I don't understand the people like this. I don't understand the people who love this way. I don't understand the people who give this generously. I don't understand the people who sacrifice to make sure there are none in their midst who go without. I don't understand the people who forgive so freely and so quickly. They see the gospel being lived out. It's why the New Testament is full of one another's. All of this language here is community language. He goes and finds this guy. They go and find another guy. They bring him here. Jesus is moving here. He simply says, come and see. This should be good news for you because it means when you're having a bad day, you can relax a little because it's not all up to you. Right? You can't be a full primary image bearer of God without other image bearers in your midst. You're just not that good. That should cause you to have some encouragement. Be a difference maker in your family. What if we started there? Is there any place harder to live for Jesus than at home? Maybe that's just our home. It's hard to live fully for Jesus at home. You ever notice how the people you live with the most grate on your nerves the most? That's just us too. This is true. But to bring the gospel witness into your home and to let grace and mercy and patience and forgiveness abound there in your church, among your friends, throughout your community. You know what's interesting? Um, it used to be in the church in the West that engagement followed attendance. That attendance was high and the longer people attended, they began to get engaged in the ministry and the mission of the church. But there's been a massive shift in the last 10 to 15 years. And now it is absolutely the truth that attendance follows engagement. To the degree that people are not engaged 
in the ministry and mission of Christ, they will not long attend a church. And can I say, I think this is a healthier place. I think this is a place that's more indicative of what the New Testament would say it means to be a member of the local church versus the kind of membership foolishness that we've created over the last two or three hundred years. That if you're not engaged in a participatory way in the body of Christ and the mission of Christ, you really need to think about seriously whether or not you're a follower of Jesus. Because our values shift, our passions shift. They begin to line up with Him. And I want to speak just for a second quickly um, to those of you watching online who are homebound now and will remain homebound throughout the rest of COVID. The invitation to make a difference extends to you too, where you are. And I was thinking through this this week, how is it if we rarely leave the house, how is it that we can continue to be difference makers for Christ? Because that's the call. Or rather, to submit ourselves to Christ so that through Him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is making a difference through our lives. Let me just throw out a couple of suggestions for those of you that are home and you know you'll be home uh, until COVID's in the rear view. One, and this sounds so simple, but just pray. Make it a daily consistent thing to pray for us as a church. To pray for brothers and sisters in Christ that you're not seeing very often right now. To pray for your neighborhood. Pray. And not just for everyone's wellness, but for the power of God to go forth. If there's anything that sifts a church quickest, it's a, a true prayer gathering. To see who shows up to pray. To pray for the power of God to be unleashed. We're going to have one of those coming up soon. I know everybody can't come, but we just want to get whoever can come and wants to come to start praying. That God will set our hearts and minds on fire. Be people of prayer. Being home doesn't limit that. Give generously. Give generously. Being at home doesn't slow that down. That's a way to make a tremendous difference for the kingdom of God on earth. Don't underestimate the value, thirdly, of writing letters, of writing little notes of encouragement. Note writing, where in this one I'm talking about here is where you actually physically write something on paper. You put it in something like this. It's called an envelope. You seal it. You, you put a stamp on it. It's a little sticker. goes up in the top right corner. I love it. Like, this is a lost art. This is a lost art. But we need words of encouragement. Spend this time while you're home. Use it to write notes, to write letters of encouragement to people. Uh, our kids are part of generations that, that letter writing is just not part of it. Uh, some of you know we sponsor Compassion Children, and it's often when they're writing letters to them. Uh, I think JC's probably past this now, maybe, okay, but they'll be like, hey, I'm not sure, where do I write what and where does this thing go? Because we just don't do it much anymore. We don't do it much. Write letters. And then I will tell you this, if you're able physically, if you're able physically, start prayer walking your street even though you're homebound. Outside, we know pretty consistently, we're fairly safe. You may prayer walk real slow. Maybe it's more of a prayer stroll. But take a prayer stroll. Pray for your neighbors. History shows us that God does something when we do this. So all of us have ways to be engaged and to make a difference. And there's more and more coming as the spring begins to pick up speed as more vaccines roll out, as COVID begins to fade, God willing, we'll be doing more and more on campus and beyond our campus. Hosting things like Financial Peace University, Divorce Care, Celebration Recovery Groups, launching home groups, not to compete with Sunday school, 
but where people have a choice. So for those that aren't going to come to Sunday school, they've got small groups and homes they can choose if they want to be engaged in outreach and evangelism in consistent, strategic ways in and around our community to begin to allow God to lead us into missional engagements where we can build long-term relationships around our country and around the world. There's more coming. And this difference-making, it can, it can look unique in generations. Let me just say this, and then we'll move on. Um, generations are, are all different. We see this throughout Scripture. We see the use of that phrase, generations, again and again. Older generations typically tend to be strong in the areas of faithfulness and attendance and giving. Like, you don't have to explain to older generations why they need to be at church. They're just going to come. They're going to be faithful, by and large. Right? But younger generations have their strengths, too. Right? And typically, they're shadow sides of what older generations lack. Just like younger generations will typically lack the strengths of the older generations. Younger generations in the church today, all the way from Gen Xers to, um, to Millennials to Gen Zs, they tend to be strong when it comes to understanding and desiring the, the justice-centered aspects of the gospel, the restorative issues of the gospel. They tend to be strong when it comes to living invitationally, to inviting friends to join them as they're figuring out this Jesus thing and what it means to follow him. They tend to be strong when it comes to welcoming, welcoming those who don't think, look, or act like them. And genuinely doing so. And just giving them the space to process. When we bring all that together, God creates this beautiful thing in the local church where our witness is powerful. And we together can make a significant difference. But here's the, the voice of fear. The voice of fear says you have nothing to offer. Not, not you. Other people but not you, or what you have to offer isn't really very significant. The voice of fear says you're inadequate to make a real difference. Maybe you don't have enough education. Maybe you don't know enough Bible. So on and so forth, this goes. That's the voice of fear. It is not the voice of God, because this voice of fear is a liar. God has called you to represent him in a broken world. Last one. There's an invitation to overcome. Some of you need to hear this. Look back at verse 42. Look back at verse 42. Andrew goes and finds his brother Simon, and he brings him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated, when translated is Peter. Now look at verses 47 and 48. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael says, How do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. He said, I saw you when you were there. I saw you before you saw me. And I'm going to do something in you. When Simon comes, the, the name change here is powerful. Because what Jesus is saying is, when you come to me, you're no longer defined by what you were before. You're no longer defined by how you grew up. You're no longer defined by what your parents did or didn't do. Can we just say that some of us need to grow up a bit in that area? 
Like there, there's, there's a, a time clock on blaming mommy and daddy. And it expires way faster than most of us think it expires. I would also say this, as I'm learning as a parent. One, there's nothing terrifyingly, uh, nothing more terrifyingly humbling than being a parent. But I heard someone say this week in an audiobook I'm reading that most parents did the best they could with what they knew at the time. I think that's true. And some of you parents need to lay down some of the guilt and shame you're carrying about screwing up your kids. They came into the world screwed up, right? That's why I said for our kids, like, we want a, a college fund, a car fund, and a counseling fund. The three C's. The counseling will be later. It'll just be our gift for them. Hey, for everything we screwed up in you, here's $1,000. Fix yourself. i get you about two and a half counseling sessions. Jesus says, when you come to me, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. You shouldn't be the same this year that you were last year and the year before and the year before. There's a progressive nature to sanctification, to transformation. We should be becoming, by the power and grace of God, more patient, more loving, more joy-filled, more gracious, kinder, more faithful men and women. Your upbringing, your past, it doesn't define you, your family name. You guys remember uh, Saul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus? Saul of Tarsus, this great Jewish persecutor of the early church who's leading the way, encounters the risen Christ, and is forever changed. And after that is known by Paul, not Saul. His name wasn't changed. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. But part of what's going on there now is God is acknowledging that he's no longer to be primarily identified as the one who did not believe in Christ, who persecuted the church, who brought all this baggage into his salvation. Now he'd be known by his Greek name, Paul, and chosen by God to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. Wherever you are this morning, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whatever's been done to you, Part of the invitation here, and one of the invitations that God gives you, is to overcome that past by the power and love of God. He holds that invitation out to you. You are not the sum total of your worst day, your worst experience, the worst thing you've ever said, or the worst thing that was ever done to you. That's not who you are in Christ. God heals. God restores. The fear here is this, that you're too broken. Not that you're broken. We all know we're broken, don't we? There's nothing uh, more head-scratching than being around someone that you sense doesn't know they're broken. We know we're broken. So the whisper of fear is not that you're broken. It's that you're too broken. This whisper says this in your mind. It says, hey, everybody's broken. You're just more broken. You're too broken to be used by God in significant ways. And God says, not a chance. There's nothing you and I have been through that's larger than His redeeming spirit and power. Part of why I'm so passionate about this is that when you and I choose to listen to the voice of fear, instead of engaging in faith-centered living, we miss so much of what God intends for us to walk in and what He makes available for us to walk in because of our fear. 
And it leads not to human thriving, but to a shriveling of who God created us to be and can hold us back as a church. One of the articles I read recently was about Kodak. Kodak. Now, there was a time not too long ago where we had physical cameras, not just the camera on our phone. Anyone remember that? Anyone ever own a physical camera? Yes. And they had these little things, these little things you put in the back of them called film, right? And you would open up the back of the camera and you'd see the, the, little, uh, the little fork sticking out. Remember, you'd pull the film out and you'd line it up. That was exciting. And you'd close it, hoping that it would wind correctly. And it would do that and you would take pictures, right? And you had a limited amount, 24, 28, 32. And then you would pull that little thing out of the back. Anyone remember this? And you'd drop it in to a little circular black plastic thing with a gray lid. Anybody remember those? My brothers and I used to, used to use firecrackers and firecracker contents to, to figure out how to make those explode. I loved those things, right? And then here's what you had to do. You took pictures, and some of you, how many of you were savers? You waited until you got three or four of those little round rolls before you went to the photography store, right? Then you had to physically drive and drop it off and leave it there. And they physically developed your film and you had to drive back later it was nonsense and then you would pick up a package with physical pictures in it you do all that from your phone now but that was a time and when that day ruled kodak was king in 1976 the year i was born kodak owned 90 percent of the market share of photography in the united states how many of you would like to run a business that owned 90% of the market share of a considerable industry in the United States. That's where Kodak was in 1976. Yeah, I saw your hand, Sharon. Me too. Me too. But here's the thing. By the 90s, digital technology was taking off. Digital technology was taking off. Here's what's amazing, though, and kind of lost to history. Kodak actually employed the first engineer that developed a digital camera. A Kodak engineer developed a digital camera in 1975, and it terrified the Kodak executives. It instilled fear in them. They saw their entire empire was at stake because they thought their business was selling physical cameras and developing film, not the wider global business of photography. So they suppressed it out of fear. And they suppressed it, and they suppressed it, and they suppressed it until they finally released their first and only digital camera in 1995. 20 years later. But by that time, the horse had left the barn, so to speak. Right? They couldn't slow the rising tide. And Kodak only avoided bankruptcy in 2013 by selling off all of their patents. Because they spent 20 years listening to the voice of fear. I'm telling you, that voice doesn't just destroy companies. That is one of Satan's primary tools to keep the people of God from becoming what God is calling us to be. Let's stand and pray.